think it's all about the management. Honestly, that's where people fall short. Um, and just maintaining that that presence on site, uh, making sure we're doing inspections on each unit at least once a year, just to keep an eye on things. Um, and then still continuing to, to make little cosmetic upgrades as the years go on. Because it's that deferred maintenance that gets people in trouble and the lack of management. It is a common saying amongst real estate investors that you make money when you buy, not when you sell. While this catchy phrase has value, it fails to convey how easy it is to lose money through poor property management. Whether you self-manage or hire a professional, it is important to understand how to navigate the common pitfalls and challenges with rental properties without losing your shirt or your mind. That's why you have tuned in to Maximizing Your Property Value, the Apartment Owner's Guide to Operating Rental Properties as a Successful Business. I'm your host, John Stiles, real estate agent and team leader of the VIP Real Estate Group at Bridge Realty. As a current multifamily investor and former property manager myself, I understand the headaches and difficulties of keeping an investment property from becoming a money pit and time sucker. It takes a solid business plan. It takes tested systems. And it takes key team members to actually find success. So let's take a deep dive and maximize your property value. Welcome back, everybody, to another edition of Maximizing Your Property Value. This is the show where we dive into best practices, systems, and processes for managing your rental business. I am really pleased to have with me Daniel Kruger in the studio. And Daniel is with DGK Acquisitions, which is a local firm here in the Minneapolis-St. Paul metro. Uh, Daniel's focused on multifamily investing, and uh, we're excited to have you here, Dan. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Great. So could you tell us a little bit about your company Actually, before we get there, why don't you start with how you got into real estate? Sure. Uh, well, I've been obsessed with uh, investing in some way, shape, or form for most of my adult life. And I went to school uh, at St. Thomas for finance. Um, and uh, like most people, younger people that are interested in that kind of thing, they're initially drawn to the uh, the, the idea of being a, a trader or something at some kind of investment bank or something like that. Um but, uh, but yeah, after college, I ended up in the corporate finance space, uh, basically internal reporting and analysis at various companies, um, man managing budgets, uh, building models and forecasting cash flows, and did a little bit with some acquisition analysis uh, at one of my positions. So uh, my background is pretty heavily in the analytics and managing budgets, which, which translates pretty well into the real estate game. Um, and it was about five years into the, the corporate gig that I realized that the corporate space just wasn't for me. Um, there wasn't enough growth potential. Um, I wanted something that, uh, you know, I could have full control over as well as um, could scale up exponentially. And it's kind of tough to do in the corporate world. You know, even if you do really fantastic, you're still kind of limited by whatever the corporate structure is. So, so I was really drawn to the, the entrepreneurial aspects of real estate. Yeah. So then what was like your first purchase into real estate? The first deal I did was a six-unit apartment building in St. Paul. Um, and it was a pretty uh, uh, standard uh, business plan with that. It's pretty much the business plan we've used on every property. Uh, we just find something that's been let go. It's had a, a landlord that was either just burnt out or didn't know what they were doing. And there was a big dis disparity between the rents uh, that were currently being charged and what the market would bear. Um, so that was the opportunity there. Yeah. Um, so basically fixed the units up, got a better tenant base in there, and uh, did a refinance, pulled the equity out that we created, and rolled on to the next one. Yep. It's pretty much rinse and repeat ever since. 
Um, that's really interesting that your first purchase was a six unit building. You know, a lot of people start with like a single family or a duplex, something like that. Yeah. What was the difference in your situation? The level of control that you get when you get above five units, uh, then you start to look, then you're dealing with uh, commercial financing as opposed to uh, like a residential mortgage on a, a single family home. Um, it's just a, a different process. It's a lot easier, I think, when you're dealing with commercial properties because they're looking at the income on the property. Um, and seeing if, if that'll support the debt as opposed to looking at uh, the borrower and what their personal income is. Um, and then also the valuation. Uh, the properties are valued based on the income and it's less dependent on comparables. So that, that kind of puts control into your hands. You know, if you run the property well, then you can be confident that the value is going to go up as opposed to just kind of waiting for the market to, to do its thing. Yeah. So. Yeah. That's the great thing about yeah. large multifamily. Exactly. Wonderful. Um, so then take us briefly through the development of your company. Kind of where do you stand now? What is your focus in your company? Uh, right now it's uh, scaling up into bigger deals. And in order to do, that, to do that effectively, you need to build systems and build a solid team. So that's the focus right now. Um, and property management is, is paramount in that aspect. You know, having good systems internally for investor relations and all that good stuff is, is great. But uh, if you don't have your property management uh, fine-tuned and uh, the, the tenant experience on the ground um, fine-tuned, then the assets just aren't going to perform. No matter how good your business plan is and how good you are at, at finding deals, if the property management isn't in place, then it's just not going to perform. So. Yeah. Yeah, that's, we're definitely going to cover that here. Um, so what is the kind of geographical area? Are you mostly in the Twin Cities here? Yeah, it's all St. Paul so far. And I look at everything in the metro area. Um, but uh, for whatever reason, the, 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 the deals that pencil out are always in St. Paul. And that's actually worked out nicely uh, because we have a nice little um, uh, neighborhood that we're concentrated in. So as far as efficiencies in, uh, in management and maintenance, uh, you know, my maintenance guys and my manager aren't driving all over town between properties. Everything's pretty concentrated, so it makes it uh, pretty easy uh, logistically to manage and execute on our projects. Yeah, very good. So talk to us about um, the property management side of things. Mm -hmm. you, you touched on that briefly here. So a lot of people um, go ahead and hire a third-party manager. There's lots to choose from in our metro area here. Mm -hmm. um, what have you decided to do in that space? Well, when I first uh, got the first deal, um, I was—I th I think I was under the impression that a lot of people are when they're first getting started into real estate is that it's going to be a, a passive endeavor. So on my very first property, I did have a property management company um, on day one uh, for a couple of reasons. One, uh, I had no idea how to manage properties because I'd never done it before. And two, uh, I thought it was going to be a, a, a passive endeavor for me. And uh, due to the, the level of work that had to be done in, in rehabbing the units and how much um, on-site presence was needed to execute that properly, uh, it wasn't a good fit to have a third-party manager, or at least the one that I had. It's just things weren't getting done efficiently. So about six months into that project, uh, I severed that relationship, and then I just took over to get things done in a timely manner. And um, so I got a good crash course there in the first year. Um, I worked alongside the property management company for the first six months and and learned a lot from them, and then uh, came to the conclusion that uh, they just it, it, they weren't fiscally incentivized to care enough to get it done, at least on a deal that small. Uh, I think when you get to bigger deals, it's you know it's definitely a good solution. But for a single six-unit building like that, they weren't making enough money to care enough about it 
and at the end of the day, no one was going to care about it more than me. So I figured it was best just to, to dive in and uh, take it over for myself so that the, the project worked out, and it did. And uh, it was a great learning experience. So you know, I think if anyone's getting into this, they should, um, even if they do hire a third-party manager, try to integrate themselves a decent amount just to understand what the process is so that when they're hiring future managers, they know what to look for and, and how to manage them. Yep. Do you think your experience was was because of the value-add component and the large uh, renovations? Or yeah. would yeah. it have been different if it was already stabilized? Yeah. If it was a turnkey deal, uh, I think that would have been a, a good solution. They would have just been uh, you know, collecting rents, stopping by the property maybe once a week to make sure things are, are looking good. Uh, but due to the level of rehab that needed to be done, it needed boots on the ground every day to make sure things were getting uh, taken down. And that, uh, you know, had I been more experienced on that first day, I would have known that going into it. But, you know, just got into it and, and, and learned the hard way. And it was a good crash course and learned a lot. Um, but after that, I, I kind of zeroed in on the, uh, the importance to me in having that level of control in these projects. So I decided to stay uh, vertically integrated with my property manage management instead of hiring out to third parties to just build a team in-house so that I could still have that control yet still be able to take a step back and know that the person managing the assets is, is my employee and they're, they're, they're pretty much just as incentivized as, as, as I am to, to do it correctly and they don't have other properties for other people that they're managing that are going to distract them. Yeah. Uh, one of your comments just now made me uh, think of something. So you said stop by once a week. Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of managers I've talked to stop by their properties once a year, yeah. once a quarter, maybe. Yeah. Um, how often do you recommend uh, we stop by our rental properties? Uh, well, for, for our projects that we're working on now, um, it's almost every day. Um, maybe not the week. But those are, those are specifically for value-add projects? Yeah, so there's, okay. pro there's, there's rehab projects going on, and there's, there's usually a need for... Uh, for a visit for one reason or another, but uh, I think at least once a week, uh, sure. to be honest. Um, what about uh, stabilized properties? How, how often do you recommend stopping by those? Well, I guess it kind of depends. You know, if it's a single family home, that's a different story. There's less things that are going to happen with one tenant. But if you have a six or 10 unit, then there's 10, six or 10 potential things that could be going on. You know, the more people you have, the more potential little issues there are, even if it's just general cleanup around the property. Um, but I personally err on the side of, of having a greater presence because uh, we're invested in the C-class assets. And um, and I think those assets typically don't get the best customer service. So if you provide that, then you're going to have much better uh, tenant retention and you're going to start to get referrals. And I think it just leads to better a better customer experience, which leads to better occupancy and better performance in the, in the asset. Hmm. So I guess one takeaway from this little discussion is just uh, whichever property you're buying, consider the proximity of yourself and or your manager so that you can have that high mm -hmm. presence level, especially in the lower classes where, um, well, probably in any class um, where, you know, like you just said, when tenants see you there, they're going to recognize that you care. Yeah. And I think a lot of tenants, they don't really... Um they shy away from communicating issues, whether it's uh, maybe the, the trash company didn't pick up the, the trash one week. Um, you know, everyone's kind of expecting someone else to call and let someone know. Or there's just some, uh, you know, some rubbish around the property. You know, everyone's probably thinking that someone else will, will make the call. Or even if there's a, a repair that needs to happen in the unit, a lot of times tenants don't really want to bother the management. And they might see it as, 
as a negative. Uh, but if there's a presence on site on a regular basis, we can catch that stuff that that uh, people are either waiting for someone else to call in about or are just kind of kicking the can down the road on and, and not calling about. So it lets us be more proactive with keeping things running properly. Yep. Yep. Very important. So um, talk to us about growing your in-house management team. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what? maybe talk to us about your first hire. Yeah. Well, the uh, the first hire was actually more of a, an acquisition. I had a, a live-in caretaker in the second building I acquired um, who turned into my uh, basically my leasing agent for the most part and then also did uh, you know other property management duties like side visits and uh, helped route maintenance calls and things to me. Um, so that was the first hire, so to speak. Um, he was an older gentleman that had been in the building for, I think, 10 or 11 years. Um, and so he was great. He was really... Uh, really in touch with the market he knew the tenants he knew the tenant base and so when he was showing units he was very relatable and and uh he was also just a great sales guy um and he was old enough he had a ton of experience in sales he could you know he could show a unit better than i could and i think I, he just related to the the tenant base better than i would um so he was fantastic and then unfortunately like i said he was older there were some health issues and he ended up ended up passing so after that um that's when i went to the the market uh, to try to actually hire uh, someone after that. The first actual hire after that was not a, a good one. Uh, that one um, uh, took about a month to realize that uh, the first first hire was a, a bad fit, and it basically just came down to poor communication. Um, she wasn't uh, communicating with the, the tenants properly. She wasn't communicating with me properly. Projects weren't getting done. So after about a month there, we realized that that wasn't a good fit, moved on. And then uh, since then, we've gotten... Um, uh, another manager on board uh, who's also a realtor, uh, so that has an additional value add there. When I'm, we're looking at uh, uh, new deals to uh, to underwrite, he's going to be able to bring a lot of value to the table and help us uh, assess neighborhoods and things like that. And uh, then we also have a part-time uh, property manager as well who has a full-time corporate job but uh, is really interested in investing in real estate and wants a little bit of extra income coming in, so he helps cover the nights and the weekends. So it's a it's a good little team we got so far. So I think we can get up to about 100 units or so before we need to bring somebody else on board. So yeah, how I'm anticipating scaling it is about about uh, uh, about one manager for every 100 units. That seems to be, um, based on people I've talked to, that seems to be a good mix. Yep, that sounds about right. Um, what was your experience with, uh, or sounds like it was a positive one, but talk to me just about the idea of having a tenant be kind of employed versus an outside person um is there any dynamics there to be considered yeah i mean it's it it is nice to have somebody on site especially at these buildings that don't have the scale to support an on-site manager officially you know if you're looking at deals that are 100 200 300 units you're going to have dedicated staff on site with an office there and you've got some you know you've got boots on the ground uh you know monday through friday eight to five um However, if you don't have that kind of scale, I think there still is a lot of value in having at least a, uh, a caretaker, even if they're not really a manager, just to kind of keep an eye on um, uh, upkeep, the common areas. Uh, they can help out with, you know, throwing salt down when there's snow. And, you know, you have your, your dedicated uh, snow removal guys and, and lawn care guys, but they can help with those little things in the interim, as well as just be your, your eyes and ears for anything that's going on on the property. Um, because that's valuable. Even if you have a, a, a property manager who's making site visits every week, 
you know, the stuff that happens at three in the morning, they're not going to see. But a living caretaker who, you know, might get a little discount on rent or something is going to be able to pick up the phone and say, okay, unit number seven is, you know, having a few parties. That's you know, so it gives us an extra level of insight into how the, the property is actually running. Yep. That little detail about putting out salt is really important because oftentimes whatever snow removal company you might use, you know, they go out after a one inch or two inches, depending on your contract. Yeah. Um, but though that one inch needs to be cleared still mm -hmm. and ice builds up. And so. Yeah. That little stuff is valuable. So that's really where you either need someone who's, uh, you know, you, who you employ that's up at, f you know, four in the morning to start doing that. Or, you know, the best thing in my opinion is just to have someone on site and they get a little discount to run out there in the morning, you know, shovel the, the walkway, maybe just a couple feet, throw some salt down. And that makes a big difference for the residents. Yep. Well, you talked earlier about your business plan is buying kind of distressed properties mm -hmm. or properties that have been neglected and then turning them around. Yeah. Can you touch on a little bit about the process of maybe how you decide which things should be done for the best return on that mm -hmm. investment type of thing? Yeah, I think you're going to get the most bang for your buck in the uh, unit upgrades as well as the common area upgrades. Um, so initially when we're looking at a project, the first step is during the physical inspection, during the due diligence. I'm walking through every unit with uh, my engineer. He's looking for um, you know, structural issues, plumbing, electrical, um, you know, all that good stuff that you need to worry about. And then I'm in there looking for what kind of aesthetic upgrades can we make uh, to increase the rents. Uh, and then the same goes for the common area. Um, so, you know, nailing that down during due diligence is going to be important, trying to figure out, you know, where are the value add opportunities, how big is the gap between the current rents and the market rents, and, uh, you know, what can we upgrade to, to get some better rents? Because there's a lot of things you can spend money on that won't necessarily get you a higher rent. Um, you know, adding a, a ceiling fan or something like that. It's, you know, it looks nice, but is it going to get better rent? I think money is better, better spent on, um, you know, upgrading the flooring, the appliances, the bathroom. That's the stuff where people, the, the tenants actually see value. So, you know, yeah. basically I, I take a, an, an ROI approach to it. I always look at each expenditure and say, how much is it going to cost? And what's the theoretical boost in the rent, if anything, that we're going to get? Mm-hmm. Yeah, with ceiling fans, that, that's actually more things that can go wrong. Yeah, that's a liability. You could have a, a kid hanging from it. You could have all sorts of things going on. So that's one of those things where, you know, people put them in there, but they don't really realize that they're probably not going to get money back for it. And there's, you know, an added liability too. anything that you can kind of trip on or hang from or anything like that could actually be an issue. So, yeah, it's worth being aware of. So what has been the uh, the best way to efficiently implement your value add plan during the uh the due diligence process while we're doing the walkthroughs and all the units i'm also taking notes on um my initial perception of the tenants and so if we can uh, identify if there are any tenants that have been causing issues in the property um and they're not on a 12-month lease that could be an opportunity to uh, identify which units we want to prioritize so if we see someone who's um, you know, not paying their rent on time usually takes a month or two to determine that. But if we see someone who's just uh, disrespecting the unit or we see signs of, of any kind of um, illegal activity, those are usually units that we're going to prioritize coming into uh, an acquisition. And then uh, on the flip side of that, we look for who are the good tenants that uh, even if their, their rent is under market, we want to identify those good tenants who have been there for a long time, they're paying consistently, and make sure that they stay at the property and still make some upgrades to their units, whether it be appliances uh, or painting, something like that. So they get a little bit of a value add and then delay 
uh, bumping the rent on, on those people. So basically identifying the bad eggs, prioritizing those, identifying the good tenants, making sure you're making them happy, and then the rest of the units that just turn naturally to just kind of knock out the renovations as those happen. Sure, yep. And are you using um, a lot of outside third-party vendors to do this work, or do you have uh, employees for maintenance as well? Yeah, I've got a, a maintenance guy in-house uh, who handles the bulk of the work that we do, and then he has subcontractors that he pulls in as needed, depending on the volume uh, that we're doing. So um, so we try to utilize uh, stuff in-house as much as we can just to reduce the cost. Um, and that brings the cost of our projects down dramatically over outsourcing. Uh, we do still have to outsource some stuff, uh, you know, electrical work, we'll outsource that. Um, some uh, some more extreme plumbing issues we'll have to outsource. Um, any large CapEx uh, items, like if there were a roof or something like that, we would usually still outsource. But for the most part, if we're going to go in and improve, uh, you know, appliances, flooring, paint, fixtures, um, you know, redo some tile in the bathroom, that's all stuff that we can do in-house, and that helps keep the, the cost down quite a bit. Yeah. So then what is your typical expected hold time on these properties? Are you kind of a buy and hold for forever or you got a good five to seven year turnaround expectancy? Or? Yeah, well, that's kind of evolved as the, the business has evolved. So early on, I was just buying properties on my own. And um, so my, uh, my game plan uh, with those was just to basically hold them forever and, you know, refinance every few years as the debt gets paid down to uh, to keep the the, the leverage ratio uh, profitable because obviously as you build up equity uh, in a property that return on equity starts to kind of drop off if you get down to 60 or 50 percent leverage you know that that extra equity there could be used for other deals so my plan with some of those older properties was just to keep holding them uh, refi every few years to pull a little bit of equity out and redeploy somewhere else uh, but on the most recent deal that we're working on now, it's structured as a syndication where it's 80% of the funds are coming in from uh, investors and 20% is, is my money. So um, most investors do want to see uh, an end date. Um, so they do want to see a date where, okay, this is where we exit, we get everything back, and we're, we're done with this project. So the deal we're working on right now has a five-year uh, anticipated hold on it. Um, and I think that's, you know, depending on the, the projects that we look at in the future, we might go up to seven depending on what the market looks like and what, how big the project is. Uh, but I think three to five is usually ideal, just from uh, a marketing perspective to investors. That's something that people could look at, get their head wrapped around, and feel comfortable in. Um, but that also changes depending on your investors. If you're working with people who have money in an IRA account, you know, they're not going to touch that money until they're 60 anyways, so they might care less. People who are investing their cash are usually a little bit more eager to, to get in, make their money, and, and move on to the next deal. Yep. Hey everybody, I'm interrupting the show quick because I wanted to invite you to a special event that I'm hosting at the end of 2019. You know, the end of the year during the holidays is a great time to be getting together with friends and family, making new memories and even new traditions. One new tradition that my family started a few years ago is volunteering at Feed My Starving Children. If you haven't heard of this organization, you should definitely check out their website. It's fmsc.org. Basically, they utilize volunteers to pack nutritious meals, and then they send those meals overseas to different areas of the world that have a significant need for food. These meals have made a huge impact in thousands of people's lives. And I really like volunteering with Feed My Starving Children for two main reasons. Number one, it gives you a tangible way to give back. 
It's not just giving money, which of course is important, but it allows you to use your time and your energy alongside of other people in a common cause. And number two, it fosters discussion of how we can live our lives serving others and not just be focused on ourselves. And since this is a family-friendly event, it allows us to live out this mindset right along with our children. So would you consider joining me? I've reserved 50 spots, and this is room for you, a friend, a loved one, to join with us and help out the cause. It would be really amazing to see you there. The date, time, and location is in the show notes. There's also a link that allows you to sign up and let us know that you're going to be there. And you can share that link with other people that you think might be interested. So thanks so much for considering it. Now, let's get back to the show. So I want to talk about uh, kind of the management process after the value add has been completed. Mm -hmm. Because um, as you know, uh, a lot of these properties that are owned by individual owners and whatnot, they become your value add opportunity. And so how do you prevent your own properties from becoming distressed? Um, it's, I, I think it's all about the management. Honestly, that's where people fall short. Um, and just maintaining that, that presence on site, uh, making sure we're doing inspections on each unit at least once a year, just to keep an eye on things. Um, and then still continuing to, to make little cosmetic upgrades as the years go on. Cause it's that deferred maintenance that gets people in trouble and, um, the lack of management. Basically, um, the property we're working on now, um, that we're, um, working on closing here, uh, before December, is um is one where the uh, the owners have owned it for twenty years and they've just gotten distracted with other properties in I think the North Metro, um and so it's just not convenient for them to get out there and and manage it anymore and that's the reason that it's an opportunity for us is just because they haven't prioritized taking care of it and they'd rather just let the rents stay low hope people don't complain about all the issues and then it becomes an opportunity for somebody else. Um, but, you know, all it takes is communication with the tenants, um, some consistent on-site presence, and um, you should be good. So Yeah, <laughs> so they've taken their eye off the ball there, yeah, huh? Pretty much. Or in some, some cases, they never had it on yeah. in the first place. Yep. So, Well, a lot of people have other businesses um, that they're working, and this is real estate's just the side thing, and if nobody's assigned to pay attention to it then yeah and i think like uh like me on my first deal i think a lot of people get into it uh, expecting it to be passive because you know it's it's marketed that way in a lot of books and a lot of programs out there it's pitched as uh, passive income you know which it can be if you partner with someone who's built a business around it then it's passive um or if you're investing in you know triple net uh properties like a cvs or something that's pretty passive um but it's pretty tough to pick up some apartments um or even single family homes on the side and treat them in a passive manner and expect them to actually perform well. You know, someone's got to be running it like a business, whether it's you or a third-party manager or you're partnering with somebody who's structured a business around it. Someone's got to have business systems in place for that asset to actually perform. Yep. Well, you've talked a lot about the communication with the tenants. Um, I know when you get several units, it can be kind of overwhelming to just prioritize and remember all the different situations that are going on. Mm -hmm. So what maybe system or tool or software have you put in place to make sure things don't get forgotten? Um, I'm a spreadsheet guy personally. So I like to track our, uh, our rent roll and uh, any notes on tenant communications in there. Uh, we've recently uh, switched over to using Buildium as well, which is a great tool. 
which we need to leverage more because that's going to be a great place for tenants to submit maintenance requests. Uh, also for our team to assign tasks to each other in there internally and have one central hub that everyone can go into and and uh, see what needs to be done and see what kind of outstanding issues there are. And um, so it's a great tool that we're working on on utilizing more. Um, but it is a slower implementation process with that because you do have to train the tenant base to use it. And a lot of these people have been, um, you know, under a certain owner for 10 years and it's always just been this, um, you know, uh, casual situation of you know rent collecting rents in person and maybe a letter going out here and there. So getting people switched over to a newer system usually takes some time and some training, especially if they're uh, in an older demographic. They might not be as uh, excited to jump on board with an online platform like that. But yeah. I think it's going to be a huge value add as we continue to train the tenant base and get right. people switched over to that. Yeah, those those new software tools, where well, they're not really all new, but mm. new to the some people, uh, those are really valuable. Yeah. But getting tenants to adopt them can be a big challenge. Yeah. Um, any any success stories of people that you've converted? Something we're working on now is creating an incentive uh, to at least pay online. Um, it could be you know just a five or ten dollar discount on rent or something like that. Uh, that seems to have some traction so far. Um, but otherwise it's just consistency with, uh, the message and having, um, my manager or, you know, whoever you're utilizing, make sure there's a consistent message to the tenants that, you know, this is the way that we're going to be doing things going forward. But I think offering some kind of incentive above just the reminders is, is a good tool as well. Cause if people are going to save a couple of bucks, um, you know, that, that, that usually gets people to, to take action. Yep. For sure. Even that $5 can go a long way. Yeah. Yeah, so, so it's worth it. Um, did you um, review several management softwares before you landed on Buildium, or what made that decision for you? Not really. I mean, it was basically I used um, a software called Tenant Cloud that I signed up for when I got my first property. Um, wasn't too excited about that. There really was no customer service to it, um, and it was useful for collecting payments online. But outside of that, it was it wasn't a very user friendly system at least as far as I was concerned. Um, and then I, you know, I did some research online and basically, excuse me, basically came down to Buildium and Appfolio. And while interviewing property managers, I came across Yardi as well. But um, the ones I kept hearing about talking to people in this space and the multifamily space and syndicators, and syndicators was Buildium and Appfolio. And uh, I believe Appfolio has a minimum number of units. I want to say it's a hundred, something in there, a little bit higher price point, but it, almost always seems to make sense at a certain point if you have enough units. So making the jump to that one is going to be uh, inevitable, in my opinion. So uh, buildings seem to make sense for under 100 units. You still get some some robust uh, features there. And the price point uh, was uh, was pretty good. I can't remember off the top of my head what it was per month. But, um, you know, it's it wasn't a big uh, outlay of cash. So it was definitely definitely worth it if you utilize it to its fullest. And then I think once you get into more units, uh, Appfolio seems to be the, the winner from most people I've spoken with. Yep. Wonderful. So uh, have you been the main property manager then within your company, or do you have other sub-managers kind of dealing with different properties? Um, the way I structure right now is my, um, my full-time property manager is the main manager. And... Um, I am, as far as the the residents are concerned, um, I try to keep myself fairly removed just so that there's consistency in who's getting contacted. 
um, if we have one point per, one point person and uh, one guy who's the manager, so to speak, I think it uh, makes it a lot easier. You don't have communication coming into three different people, and so that's been a little bit of a uh, a learning curve for for tenants with the turnover we've had and the fact that my maintenance guy is. Uh, you know, usually taking requests as he's on site working on stuff, getting people to just uh, funnel all their communication through one individual. Um, it's been challenging, but we're working on it. So right now, the way I have it structured is um, my full-time manager is the manager, and I try to make myself more so the asset manager, um, making sure that I uh, assign budgets, projects, and approve certain expenditures over a certain amount. But I try to let him pretty much do his thing because he has a lot of experience. Uh, and he knows a heck of a lot more about property management than I do. So it's, you know, kind of the goal is to hire people that excel in the areas where uh, I'm not the best. So yeah. I'm a good underwriter. I'm a good asset manager. I'm good at finding deals. Um, but as far as property management, you know, I had my, you know, 12 months of experience there uh, when I got started. Uh, but he's coming to the table with several years of experience as well as um, real estate agent background. So, yeah. Yeah, that's great. So, as uh, from an asset manager perspective, how do you look at managing your manager? Um, you know, kind of what uh, routines do you put in place? How frequently do you meet with him or, you know, that type of stuff? Uh, we, we do uh, weekly meetings officially. Um, and then there's communication pretty much every day with all the projects that we've got going on right now. Um, so I try to, um, this is a tough one for me, try to, uh, let him take ownership over the role because I'm I tend to be uh, a micromanager if I'm not careful because I'm a little bit of a control freak and uh, when you're trying to take that approach and you know less about the job than uh, the person you're trying to micromanage that's not a good that's not a good mix so um, you know it's been uh, really helpful for me to utilize uh, mentors in that aspect and uh, get that confirmation that yes you do need to you know trust someone to do this um, for you. Even if you think you can do it better, you know, you've got to let them do their job. And even if they fail, you've got to let them do that uh, to actually have a good relationship with the employees. Because if you're in there meddling with things, then that's just not a scalable business model. You'll never be able to scale up if you're always the one who's got to review every little thing that happens. So, yep, for sure. It's been that, tough, but we're working on it. That's a, a lesson that a lot of us need to learn. Mm-hmm. Uh, entrepreneurs, we'd like to have our hands into everything and yeah. make sure it gets done right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I've read a few books that uh, uh, speak on that topic. So, you know, E-Myth is a good one. I'm sure you've probably read that. But, uh, you know, the, the message is consistent across the board. Uh, pretty much every book, every expert in the field, you got to step back and let other people do their thing. Otherwise, you're just not going to scale. So, Yep. Great. Well, right now I want to bring in a question from our audience. And so I'm just going to pull it up here on the computer. Hey Styles, this is Justin Hennig with also with Bridge Realty and with Lindhurst Holdings. We're a buy and hold company in South Minneapolis working on building a portfolio and also uh, redeveloping some property. I have a question related to RUBS or Ratio Utility Billing Systems, I believe it, it stands for. Um, I've seen other uh, landlords implement that to reduce their expenses and increase their profits overall by defraying the cost of water, sewer, garbage, and I've even seen it used for uh, gas. Um, typically, electrical is always separate. So anyways, we'd love to uh, hear what you got to say about that and uh, how we can improve our businesses. Thanks, Styles. We appreciate what we're doing. 
Okay, so you had experience with the rubs uh, mm -hmm. idea? Yeah, yeah, we're working on that now. Uh, the first thing that we prioritize in all of our projects is always going to be those unit upgrades to get the increased rent. Uh, but a RUBS program is also kind of low-hanging fruit, usually because there's little to no capital expenditure required, and uh, it's an instant boost to your NOI as long as you don't um, uh, scare off your tenants by you know throwing up uh, by increasing your rents and then simultaneously adding a whole other bill to the equation. So we usually try to leg into these things and prioritize the the unit upgrades first. Um, but we're using uh, Guardian uh, as our RUBS provider and. They've got a few different ways of implementing that, depending on the number of units you have. Um, if you've got larger properties, 150, 200 units, um, it might be more advantageous to uh, install hardware on site that actually measures uh, each unit's actual use of, uh, of water, if you're going that route. Um, in my conversations with them, it's uh, it seems to be much more... Uh, it seems to make much more economic sense to use uh, the RUB system, which is ratio utility billing, where they don't necessarily install hardware, but they use a formula to back into what each unit's portion of the, the water bill will be. And they can either do square footage or uh, number of occupants. Um, seems like it's uh, six one way, half a dozen the other, um, depending on how many units you have. And if you have all the square footage data, that might be the... Uh, the deal breaker there, if you don't have that data, that might rule that one out. But in any case, they'll use uh, that data um, and they will uh, retroactively bill the tenants for previous usage. So you would scan in your bills um, that you received for the month of November, for example. Uh, they'd get that. They'd send out the bills to the tenants and they give you the option of either the tenants paying you or the tenants paying Guardian and then Guardian uh, sends the money over to you via uh, direct deposit. Um, and the cost of that's fairly low. I want to say it's about seven bucks per unit if they do the billing and the collections, and about four or five if uh, the tenant pays pays you. Um, and I think the way that most people do it is they have that uh, billing fee or whatever you want to call it uh, factored into the bill that goes to the tenant. So it could be you know zero cost to you. Uh, the only thing you'd want to consider is uh, whether or not your market's going to bear it. If there's other properties that are doing it. Um, and if uh, it's going to increase your vacancy, you know, is it worth it to get an extra 30, 40 bucks a month if someone gets that bill and gets turned off and, and leaves? So you want to make sure it makes sense. You want to make sure that um, the market will bear it and that you're not going to be throwing too many expenses at your, at your tenants at one time. Yeah. Um, do we have to use a third-party company like Guardian or is this something you can do in-house? You could do it in-house. Um, there's nothing... Uh, to my knowledge, there's nothing legally that prevents you from doing that in-house, uh, but there is a pretty big administrative demand to doing that. Um, you know, they're going to create the bills for you, mail them out with pre-addressed uh, return envelopes for the payments, and they, they do that entirely. And if you're able to, you know, uh, pass that cost on, or at least some of it to the tenant, that's usually, uh, usually better because I don't know if... For most investors, I don't think the highest and best use of their time is sitting there creating invoices and mailing them out and you know waiting for the payments to come back and all that good stuff. So I don't think the uh, the ROI in your time is there if it costs you a couple bucks to have somebody else do it uh, versus you spending hours doing it every month. Um, I think that would be probably wouldn't be the best use of your time, but you could. I don't think there's anything stopping you. You just have to have sure. an addendum in your lease and um, you know have your lawyer write it up uh, based on 
where you're located and you know just be transparent about the the method you're using whether it's the number of occupants or the square footage and if you get that addendum in there and they sign it then you know you can basically um, do the billing however you want uh, from what I understand but uh, for me it was kind of a no-brainer to outsource for the the low capital cost uh, of using Guardian and um, they have a 12-year agreement that they want you to sign, uh, but there's no upstart, uh, there's no upfront charge to start. Um, they just want you to stick around for a year if you do it. So 12 months or 12 years? Oh, I'm sorry, 12 months. Okay, 12 I was years. like, wow. Yeah, that's, that's a lot of commitment. Yeah, 12 months. I'm sorry. Okay. So I mean, you know, there's there's not a, a big uh, downside risk to doing it with a lot of these types of services. You're going to find that there's this big upfront charge if you want to start using some sort of platform and then a monthly deal. With this, it's you know you can pass the costs on for the most part, and uh, there's no real you know, reoccurring cost or anything that you need to worry about. Yeah, so you just want to be smart with uh, the types of uh, uh, increases that you're you're passing on to your tenants, and you know pick the ones that are going to be providing the most value to the tenant first, because that's going to be the most likely that, that people are actually going to be willing to pay up for. If people are going to want to pay for newer things they're probably going to be less excited to get a water bill. But on the uh, uh, on the other side of the coin, they're also probably going to be more um, cautious with their water usage too. So yep. it kind of, kind of helps everybody. That's definitely one of the benefits there. Mm-hmm. Um, have you found or what's your opinion? Is the marketplace uh, willing to pay for their water? Yeah, I think water is a pretty safe one. Uh, I haven't experimented with, uh, I forgot what else you mentioned, gas, um, electric, I mean, theoretically, you could do trash. I mean, you could bill back for all the utilities uh, and all the uh, uh, all those things if you want. Um, but I think that that's kind of pushing it, um, just because I haven't really seen many other communities do all of those things. It's usually water. Um, but yeah, I've I've lived at an apartment uh, that did this, and I wasn't even really aware of it at the time. This was back uh, four or five years ago when I first moved in with my wife. We were still uh, just dating, and it was. I was a little confused as to why the rent, uh, it was all an online system and the rent would always change a little bit each month. I never really understood why. And then, you know, years later, I've gotten into all this now and, and uh, look back and I'm like, oh, okay, they were doing, they were doing a rub system. You know, the water usage was a little different each month. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I think there might be a lot of people that, that uh, depending on how you bill it, might not even really be aware that it's there. So if you're using, you know, Appfolio or uh, one of those types of things where it's just a line item on uh on the bill that they go online and pay every month, they might not even really notice that it's there. So Yeah. Well, that always points out something that we need to increase communication about it because part of the idea is that it would reduce usage, mm-hmm. and that's only going to happen if they realize they're paying for it. Yeah. Yeah, with me, I didn't. Um, you know, they had really good systems at that place. Everything was online, and, and uh, it was really easy to just go on, click pay, and you didn't really look at the breakdown of anything. I was younger, so I didn't really pay all that much attention. But, um, but yeah, if you if your goal is to actually reduce the water usage, you do want to make sure that everyone knows that you know they they've got some skin in the game. Yeah, for sure. Well, I want to talk to our audience just briefly and mention uh, thanks to Justin for submitting that question. And if anybody else has just a thought or a question about management and would like some input, uh, we'd love to get your question. There's going to be some instructions in the show notes for how to. Uh, submit your question, and uh, it's just a great way to have a little conversation be a little bit more dynamic. So um, be sure to check that out. Okay, so I want to ask you kind of what's been the most challenging thing about being in the rental business? I'd say the most challenging thing is 
um, trying to build uh, a team of employees. Um, you know, I came into it having a pretty decent understanding of what to expect from, um, you know, f finding uh, large maintenance issues in properties. That was kind of something, you know, I expected. Uh, having weird, uh, you know, tenant situations. Um, that's something that you, you know, you hear about and you're kind of prepared for. But the unforeseen one that uh, I didn't really anticipate was um, the the interpersonal uh, things that can happen when you're hiring multiple people and having people work together for you. That, you know, that whole HR component wasn't really on my radar at first. So that's been challenging for me because I haven't, in the past, I haven't really uh, been in uh, leadership roles in any of my positions where I'm, I'm managing people and having to deal with that kind of stuff. So that's been a, uh, a new thing for me. So. Yeah, you're right. A lot of people don't think about uh, the employees or the contractors that you need to work with. Yeah. And um, that's a huge part of it. I mean, that's that's the whole thing. When you're going to really grow a business, you need people in the business, mm -hmm. right? Um, so any tips or strategies you've learned and been able to implement to kind of make that process go smoother? Uh, yeah, I think now that uh, uh, I've got a few hires under my belt, something that I've learned is uh, to not just focus on the uh, the hard and technical skills when you're interviewing somebody, but to also focus on their um, uh, philosophies and morals and make sure that they're aligned with you. Because, um, you know, it doesn't really matter if they're really great technically at the job. Uh, if they have some sort of misalignment with you, uh, misalignment with you philosophically, um, that might not be obvious right off the bat, but, you know, three, six months down the road, it might become clear that they just are on a different page um, in some respect. So they might have different different goals. They might, uh, you know, be the type who wants to, um, you know, help you drive revenue and increase the value of your asset, but they're doing it in a way that's, um, you know, taking shortcuts or, you know, not treating people properly. That might not be something you pick up in an interview, but, you know, six months down the road, you might realize that, okay, this guy's kind of, you know, cutting some corners here that might save us a few bucks in the short term, but um, is just a, uh, you know, they're not morally on on the same page. So, you know, trying to, it's tough to do, but trying to assess where someone is morally relative to you on day one is 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 valuable. It's hmm. tough to do. but Yeah. So I'm just going to add in a question there. Are you a moral person? <laughs> I am. I am. But there's a lot of people out there that, uh, uh, that aren't. So, you know, you've got to be careful. You've got to make sure that people... Uh, they're not just saying what you want, what they think you want to hear in an interview, but they actually, you know, are on the same page with you morally. You know, we're not in this business to just make as much money as possible. We're actually trying to provide a quality living experience for um, an asset class and a demographic that traditionally hasn't had the best customer service. Mm -hmm. You know, usually uh, the properties that we're getting, um, owners typically do the, the bare minimum to not lose money. And that's about it. They're just trying to keep the uh, the car on the road. They're not really trying to provide um, a uh, a really great customer experience. So, um, so that's our focus, and that's what I think is going to help us help us grow um, because that'll kind of differentiate us from uh, from the competition out there. Yep. So, on the other side of that question, what's been the biggest benefit of being a landlord? Uh, the the level of control you have over your asset. I guess if that's your question, if you're asking about benefit to being a landlord versus just being, uh, you know, an, uh, someone who owns assets and outsources the management, I think the level of control I have 
Um, keeping everything in house has been the biggest benefit. Uh, helps me keep costs down, and it helps me um, psychologically just know that um, I'm able to take ownership over the performance of these assets, and then I'm not really comfortable leaving that in someone else's hands. You know, if something goes south, I don't want to ever be able to say, "Oh, it's that person's fault." You know, I'd rather take complete ownership over it personally. Yeah, I suppose that's that's also the benefit of being in the multifamily asset class as opposed to just stocks or whatever else. Yeah, you you can control the outcomes of it. Yeah, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm fine failing if it's if I did everything I could to 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 make it happen and and I failed, I'm fine with that. But if I, uh, you know, get into some other kind of venture where I'm relying on other people to to perform for me and they don't, um, I'm not. I'm just not that comfortable with that. I'm the type of guy that just wants to take responsibility. So yeah, very good. Um, well, one other question I have as far as uh, systems and processes is when it comes to expenses at your property, mm-hmm. um, because uh, we know that that's one area we can try to have control over. But yet, it seems that there's always something to be repaired, or there's always a contractor that's charging too much. You know, there's so many different things. How have you been able to keep your expenses under control, or what? systems have you put into place for that? Uh, Well, keeping a lot in-house definitely helps quite a bit. And something that we're also taking a more proactive approach with with my current manager, and this is something he brought to the table, is to periodically um, get bids from uh, vendors that you might already, you know, have covered. Typically, So it might be trash service, it might be um, if you're leasing laundry equipment or something like that. Um, you know, these are just examples, but you know, basically keeping all your vendors honest and getting bids from competitors just to see if there's some savings out there. And nine times out of ten, if there are, you go back to your current vendor for whatever it is and say, "Hey, this guy on the other side of town is going to do it for X amount of dollars. Would you be able to match that?" And nine times out of ten, they will. So taking a proactive approach to um, just checking the market rate on different things that you're even serviced, I think, is is a good idea. Yeah, that's huge because um, otherwise you get comfortable. Mm-hmm. And I think the vendors typically see that and yeah. they're like, oh, I can increase a little bit here, a little bit here. Yep. And it just creeps up on you. Yeah. So that's a huge one. Very good. Well, we've covered quite a bit here. Um, before I let you go, I want to ask uh, just a couple of questions to allow the audience to get to know you a little mm-hmm. bit better. So the first one for that is, um, why do you get out of bed in the morning? That's a good question. Why do I get out of bed in the morning? I get out of the bed in the morning to um, improve and grow in some way, shape, or form. So my goal every day is to improve something, whether it's um, you know grow my business, um, improve my relationship with my wife, uh, improve my uh, physical fitness or health. I want to at least you know uh, kick it up a notch in one department at least. So I guess growth would be the reason I get out of bed. It's not always real estate. It's just something. I want to get up and uh, make myself better than I was the day before in some way, shape, or form. Good, good, nice. Um, and then the second question here is, what is a person or event in your history that has been kind of monumental for creating who you are today? Um, let's see. Person or event? Um, I don't know about specific event, but I think that... Um, uh, just in general, uh, when I was growing up, um, I was taught very good uh, work ethic in my household by my parents. Um, we never had a, a ton of money growing up, which, you know, in retrospect was a blessing. And uh, very early on, um, 
uh, you know, my allowance as a kid was always you know, pretty skimpy. There wasn't a lot there, but my parents created this little system where we had various jobs around the house you could do to earn extra money. And this was around probably when I was like six or eight or something. And um, that created this connection between working to get what you want as opposed to just getting an allowance and saving it up. Um, so I got hooked on working really young. And then as soon as I was able to legally work when I turned 14, I got a job right away and I was actually excited for it. Um, and I've pretty much been like that ever since. So I'd say that the just the general dynamic of my household growing up taught me really good work ethic. And I think that's played into a lot of uh, why things have gone uh, gone well for me in that in that department. Yeah, so. that's interesting. Um, we have four young kids, and so we're we have a little process for certain chores that you could get paid for. Yeah, and so trying to trying to teach our kids that uh, you don't just get money for free. Yeah. <laughs> money doesn't grow on trees. You have to work for it. So, yeah, just don't let them set the prices. Because I remember my mom initially let my sister pick the uh, the rates of pay, and oh. she put them up on the fridge. And I can't remember what the numbers were, but they were they were pretty big. And my mom just was like, "No way, no way, no way! This is ridiculous." <laughs> so she revamped that a little bit. But uh, I remember, you know, vacuuming the house was like six bucks or something. So <laughs> you do a few things a week, and you could get a pretty decent little income. Yeah. So yeah, I remember vacuuming was the best. That was the <laughs> highest one. Nice. All right. Well, before we let you go, what's the best way for people to get in touch if they'd like to learn more about your business? Sure. Uh, you can cruise by dgkacquisitions.com. Uh, there's a contact me uh, button on the uh, webpage. You can shoot me a message there. You can also just shoot me an email directly, uh, dan at dgkacquisitions.com. Um, or you can find me on Facebook. Uh, you can search for Dan Kruger or DGK Acquisitions. And uh, also LinkedIn. Search for Dan Kruger. It should pop up. Wonderful. All right, Dan, well, I appreciate you coming in and spending yeah. time with us today. Um, want to give you just a small token of our appreciation, the official Maximizing Your Property Value mug. I love a good mug. Are you more likely to put uh, coffee, hot chocolate? Oh, coffee for sure. Okay. I can't remember less than I had hot chocolate. Okay. <laughs> I like to eat my calories, not drink them. So coffee and then some sort of pile of eggs and pancakes on the side. Nice. That's what that's going to get to use for. Nice. All right. Thanks, Dan, for coming yeah, in. Thanks for having me. And to our audience, be sure to share this episode out if you found any value in it. Thank you. Thank you. The opinions shared on this show are for informational purposes only and should not be taken as a solicitation for representation or investments in any specific offering. Please consult with your financial, legal, tax, and real estate advisor before making any investment decisions. John Stiles is a licensed Minnesota real estate agent with Bridge Realty. Thanks for tuning in to Maximizing Your Property Value, the apartment owner's guide to operating rental properties as a successful business. If you're considering scaling up, downsizing or right-sizing your real estate investment portfolio, it's important to know how to determine your property's value in today's market. That's why I've put together a free ebook for you called How to Calculate Your Investment Property's Value. To get your copy, go to www.realestatestyles.com forward slash value. Now, if you found any value in today's show, be sure to subscribe to our email newsletter, YouTube channel, and podcast through your favorite podcast player. All the links are in the show notes. And would you do me a big favor? Help me get the word out about this show by sharing with your friends on Facebook and LinkedIn. And lastly, we appreciate your five-star rating on iTunes. I really appreciate you and wish you the best in your real estate investing career. Signing off, I'm John Stiles with Bridge Realty. Make it a great day.